0: invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning. Open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. As we will finish chapter 19 this morning. We've been here for some time, rightly so. But we'll come to the end of it today. We are right on the heels of what we should call the victory procession of, of Christ. In verse 28 through verse 40 of Luke 19 more commonly known as the triumphal entry, but last week we referenced that in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus doesn't actually enter into Jerusalem. It's more of this parade, this procession where he declares victory beforehand. And it's all this beautiful picture of the details orchestrated by God as he so diligently and willfully marches to the cross and it culminates at the end of the triumphal entry when the people are praising him. Um, largely unrealized, but they're praising him in messianic terms. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And even the people around realize, at least to some degree, the significance of this man, Jesus, entering in to Jerusalem. It was this joyous occasion, this wonderful occasion, this occasion of great grandeur and magnitude uh, as the Lord already proclaimed king humbly enters into really the final week of his life. As we pick up now in verse 41, the scene changes abruptly and dramatically. Look with me in verse 41, let's read, and we're going to look at today the fault of Jerusalem or the error of of Jerusalem or the people of Israel at large. There are three things in the last few verses of this chapter that are errors that are committed, that grieve and anger the heart of Christ. Look in verse 41. The Lord still hasn't entered Jerusalem at verse 41, but Luke writes and says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do For all the people were hanging on his words. The scene changes dramatically from the triumphal entry to this point. In verse 41, we encounter not a happy scene anymore, but a gloomy and dark and sorrowful scene. It goes from this happy, joyous occasion of of proclamation and praise to this moment where Christ pronounces judgment, and even prophetic destruction. About verse 41, John MacArthur writes this. He says, The Lord's response in verse 41 reveals a striking difference between the people's expectation of Him and His condemnation of them. The contrast between what the people anticipated in the triumphal entry And what they would receive is extreme. The contrast between the attitudes of the people, one of joy, and the attitude of Jesus, one of sorrow, could not be more opposite. The scene moves from joy to horror. The crowd speaks of peace. He speaks of destruction. They pronounce on him glory. He pronounces on them doom. It's a great summarization of what takes place in this transition from the triumphal entry to, to verse 41. In the, in the same event, the same moment, with the same scenery, the same crowd, in the same breath, the Lord's attitude changes dramatically and doesn't match at all what the people are proclaiming anymore. And there are three reasons, I think, why. The first one this morning is in verse 41 through. 44 and it is that the people didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't recognize him as Christ or honor him as the son of God. In verse 41 Luke uses this word wept to describe Jesus Jesus' actions and emotions when he sees the city of Jerusalem as he's drawing near. And he uses, the literal literal word for wept that he uses in Greek is the strongest word for weeping that he could have possibly employed and, and used. Literally, it means wailing. It means being distraught the reader of the time would have easily seen it and known that it meant serious and intense sobbing. And they would have gathered what would have been true of Christ, that in this moment there would have been many tears and loud moans coming from Jesus, moans of pain, moans of sorrow. When we find Jesus in verse 41... We find a broken man over something. This is the only time in Luke's gospel that Jesus is described as weeping. The other time, and we kind of think of Jesus weeping as familiar because we familiarized our our, our minds with the time in John chapter 11, verse 35, when Jesus weeps over Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus as he's about to raise him from the dead. But Luke intentionally only mentions Christ weeping in this verse alone with such an emphatic word for a very specific reason, to grab our attention and force us to ask the question, what is breaking the heart of Christ? What what leaves his soul in shambles? With all the praise and, and all the, the prophecy being fulfilled and the triumphal entry and in the final week of his mission what what makes him in verse forty one break down? It's a it's a deeply moving verse that forces us to ask why. Why this distress? Well, thankfully, in verse 42, Jesus gives us the answer. It's the condition of the people that causes Christ to break down in such a way. He weeps over Jerusalem and the fact that they don't know, as he says, the things that make for peace. Would that you, even you, he says, the epicenter of God's activity this city that represents God's presence and so much of God's work with such history of, of God's activity moving and, and ministering. This, this city, capital city, full of religious people believing and thinking that they're following after God. I wish that you, even you, and all your religion would have known what makes for peace. Our Lord is not talking about political peace here. He's not talking about societal peace. Although those are the things the crowd wanted and ultimately expected as he entered into Jerusalem, Jesus is concerned about something much more significant, much more serious. He's concerned about peace with God. And he laments Jerusalem and its inhabitants. Because they do not know and have failed to recognize and really refuse to realize what makes peace with God. What makes for peace with the Almighty? And what's the answer? It's Jesus himself. Romans chapter 5 is worth our brief attention because Paul talks about this. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Let me back up into chapter 4, verse 25, talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Then he writes chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is what we need. Peace with God is important. Peace, peace with God is the foundation for our relationship with Him. We have no relationship with God if we're not first made at peace with God. Scriptures define us apart from Christ as enemies. Hostile. Paul says in the book of Romans the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot please Him. Church, we need peace with the most powerful being in the universe. Christ's heart is broken because peace had been offered to these people. Peace had come to these people in the person of Christ, and they did not recognize it. I would that you... Even you had known on this day as I come to you, this day, the final Passover week, this day when, when salvation is right on the horizon, I wish that on this day you would have known how to have peace with God, but you do not. That is their problem. It's telling, isn't it, about the heart of Christ. He so longs for sinners to have peace with God. He so longs for the lost to be made right with their maker. He looks at this city full of corruption. Full of false religion. Full of hypocrisy. Full of tyrants. And he weeps because they're not being made right with God doesn't matter to Christ what their background it is. It doesn't matter where they mess up. It doesn't matter what their, their sin is or their issue is. He wants them to have peace with God. And the fact that they don't melts his heart in sorrow. Christ has already lamented Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13. Verse 34, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Verse 38 of Luke 19. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They've cried it out and here they see Christ coming, but they don't see Him coming as Savior. They see Him coming as blasphemer and lunatic. And so He comes as judge. The error or fault of Jerusalem begins with this fact. That they didn't open their eyes to Christ. And this is not innocent ignorance church. It is willful rejection of Jesus. Christ is broken over it. In verse 42 Jesus even takes it a bit further. Since they have so consistently rejected and ignored him now at this this final stage of His earthly ministry and and earthly life, He pronounces that the rejection that they have heaped upon Him is now divinely prescribed to them. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, faith in Me, repentance, grace, mercy, not works. But now, He says, it's too late. They are hidden from your eyes. Their condition, again, is not innocent ignorance. It's willful rejection that has led to them being separated from God to the point that that now the, the path of peace to God has been hidden from them, removed from them, blocked up against them. And we find that in the rest of the text. Try to highlight that as we walk through it this morning. Over and over again we find they are blinded from the truth. They're blinded from seeing Christ. They have no other choice. And you and I ought to take the warning very seriously. That in my understanding of verse 42, these people have rejected Christ. For so long that now the opportunity to see and to know has been taken away from them. And I believe such is the case still to this day. You might put off repentance and you might think that you will come to faith in Christ at a later date in your life. That you'll take care of that religious stuff when death draws near. But then death will suddenly lay itself upon you and take hold of you and you will have no opportunity. And life will get busy and the cares of this world will weigh you down and snatch the seed of the gospel away from you and you will have no opportunity. Make no mistake, church. Our God is a merciful God, rich in mercy is how he's described in Scripture. But his opportunity and extension of mercy to the lost will not extend forever. Eyes will be shut. Hearts will be hardened. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And there will be no chance for repentance. Many, many people will be like Esau described in Hebrews chapter 12. They seek repentance even with tears and are unable to find it. Do not put off coming to Christ while his arm of mercy and his invitation of grace is extended to you. Don't dabble in the world and in your sin and put off Christ because eventually the opportunity will be removed. Christ's heart is grieved in verse 41 because of the condition of the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, the people whom he loves so dearly and desires to be made right with God, have peace with God. They have rejected him and in doing so, they have had the opportunity of salvation removed. Verse 41 and 42 are weighty verses. Verse 43, Jesus moves on to prophetically describe the destruction of Jerusalem, which came to be fulfilled in A.D. 70, when Rome squashed a zealous a zealot uprising and in doing so destroyed Jerusalem. And this prophecy, um, by all technical measures, still is true today. 8070, AD 70, when Rome destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they also destroyed the temple. The temple's been destroyed ever since. This prophecy is where Israel is living under the consequences of this choice that they've made. It's a sorrowful description of verse 43 and the first part of verse 44, and five details are given to us. Number one, These days are going to come upon you. They're going to come upon you suddenly when your enemies, not your friends, your enemies are, number one, going to set up a barricade around you. Number two, they're going to surround you. Number three, they're going to hem you in and shut you in on every side. There's no chance for escape. Number four, they're going to tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And number five, they're not going to leave one stone upon another in you. It is a description, church, of total and complete upheaval and chaos and destruction. It's not a beautiful picture. It's not a flowery image that Jesus paints. As the people have been laying down their cloaks and their palm branches and screaming Hosanna and praise and blessed, Jesus responds with this. Weeping, lamenting, sobbing, And through his tears, proclaiming, One day you will be destroyed. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus now weeps for them, but he says, One day you will weep also. You will wail over the destruction that befalls you. Jesus uses the word you, while you, or the word your, roughly 14 times in these verses. 11 in 43 and 44 alone. It's a very personal and very real remark that Christ makes here. He places the burden of responsibility on them. And in verse 44, He gives us the reasoning that this destruction will happen. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because... You did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, all of this is coming to pass because you didn't realize God was here. Because you didn't realize you were being visited by the Son of God, by the Messiah Himself, by the Anointed One, by Christ. Your eyes were shut. Your hearts were darkened. Your minds were distracted. And severe measures have to be taken. John in his prologue to his gospel. Chapter 1. Describes this very attitude. Chapter 1 verse 10 and 11. Jesus was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet. The world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people. Did not receive him. That's what we find in Luke 19 christ grieved over you didn't know what made for peace with god you thought it was your temple attendance you thought it was your tithing you thought it was your purification rituals and your washing rituals and your ceremonies and, and your this that and the other you don't know what makes for real peace with god You didn't know that God had come among you. You didn't know that God had visited you in Christ. You didn't realize the Messiah is here. And interestingly, Jesus says, this is the reason destruction will come. Live with your consequences. You have rejected God and God has rejected you. And at the very least... It might represent more, but the destruction of Jerusalem at the very least is meant to represent this divine disciplinary act to drive the people back to Christ, back to God, to reconsider their ways. That's how God has dealt with Israel all throughout the Old Testament. That's how God deals with us even today. Whatever's necessary to drive us into his arms. Whatever's necessary to cause us to reevaluate, to be humbled, to, to realize we need a savior. We need a redeemer. We need someone to fix this broken place. Why do you think your heart is still, even as a Christian, so grieved when you lose a loved one in death? Because death has a grand purpose of driving you to God to realize. That's not natural. I need a redeemer. Why do you think people flock, 9-11, church attendance skyrocket, skyrocketed in the United States for about three or four months? Why do you think that is? Because tragedies serve the purpose of reminding us this world is broken. We need a, someone to fix it. We need a redeemer. Why is Jerusalem destroyed and why is Christ prophetically described that destruction? Because they didn't realize God when He was here in the flesh. And just maybe, when the temple's taken away and their enemy lays hold of them and everything's in upheaval, just maybe they'll turn to God. Such is the case for us. God might be allowing hardship in your life to force you into the arms of Jesus. You might suffer if you reject Christ too often this is no light matter to reject Jesus ultimately is to reject peace with God and i think that is why ultimately our lord is weeping their condition is less than savory number 2 this morning verse 45 and 46 and all all three of these errors build upon one another when you fail to realize or when you refuse to, to honor Christ or realize Christ, you lead to the next, and then that leads to the next. And the second thing is that they didn't honor God's will, which is natural. If you're not going to believe in Christ, recognize Jesus as the Savior of the world and Lord of the world, you're obviously not going to honor God's will, but that's going to lead into even other areas of your life. In verse 45, Jesus finally comes into Jerusalem. It, it's interesting because Luke's gospel has been building to this point um, so emphatically. And then he just seems to slide over it and pass over it when Jesus finally comes into town. Because for Luke, he's not, he's not focusing on location He's focusing on what it means for Jesus to be in Jerusalem. But by verse 45, he's in Jerusalem and as would be fitting of the Lamb of God, he goes first to the temple. And in the temple, he finds a less than desirous sight that instantly turns his weeping into righteous indignation or anger. What causes the Lord to weep? What What grieves his heart? What angers his heart? What happens in verse 45 and verse verse 46? He enters the temple and he finds selfish gain, materialization, monetary intentions. He begins to drive out those who sold. And according to Jesus, in his eyes, uh, in verse 46... These people are dishonoring God's gracious gift to them, dishonoring his will, his law, his word, his intentions. My house shall be a house of prayer. That's the purpose of this place for you to meet with God and you have turned it into a den of robbers. You have perverted it. This is likely the second time Jesus has cleansed the temple. In John chapter 2, John records a cleansing of the temple, but it's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If we hold that to be true, which we should, this happens at the end of his ministry, which tells us these people in Jerusalem at the temple have refused to learn their lesson. It's a continued stubbornness in humanity. It's not just a mark of Israel. It's a mark of all of us. Stephen describes in Acts 7 when he's talking to the religious leaders and he calls them stiff-necked people. We are all stiff-necked towards our sin. Stubborn to run after the vomit like the dog. Jesus must cleanse the temple again because they have dishonored and ignored and distorted God's plan for the temple. It is a tragedy upon tragedy when we take the gracious gifts of God and pervert them for our own gain and pleasure. And that's exactly what's happening here in the temple. Don't don't skip over that significant fact. It's the eve of the Passover. This place where Jesus is at in verse 45 is the most crowded place in all of Israel at the time. It's the most crowded place and the most crowded city because people from all over the known world who are Jewish by faith and religious religion are flocking, if they're able, flocking to Jerusalem, particularly to the temple, to celebrate Passover. It is the Super Bowl times a hundred. Hundreds of thousands of people are here and they're going to this epicenter. And so the people of Jerusalem and surrounding areas would set up and they would begin to sell sacrifices. Oh, you need a ram? I can sell you that. You need a bull? I can sell you that. Then they would start selling other things to increase their gain, they would even change currency. And Christ comes upon this scene of this crowd of people and it's almost like an auction. And his heart goes from grief over their rejection of him to anger of what they're doing to the gift of God. Perverting it. And lest you act like a Pharisee and think how dare they realize this attitude is deeply embedded in your heart also to take the good and gracious things of God and to make them for selfish gain. You know, often people think that way towards church. They say things like, the church exists for me, to serve me. Or I think we should have this style of a service or sing these type of songs or do this, these type of things. I think the pastor should do what I think he should do. I think we should have this ministry. I think we should do this and that. We have a term for this now. It's so prevalent. In our little blip of church history, we've come up with a term to describe this. It's called the consumer church or the preference driven church. Where we take the, the good and gracious gift of the church herself and we make it all about what it can do for me. You can take any number of things. Your money, if I dare go there, how can this best serve me? My retirement, how how can I save up and spend my life for my retirement so I can go traveling and I I can do what I finally want to do in life? We are good at taking the very breath God has given us and making it all about us. If it were not for God's common grace of science, we might think the sun and the world revolves around us. Not realizing every single moment and every single breath is a gift, gracious gift from God, meant to be used for His agenda, His glory, His purpose, not yours. Church doesn't serve you, you serve Christ. Money doesn't serve you, it's to serve Christ. If God gives you the benefit of retiring, that's not for you. That's for Christ. If God has given you a job, that's not for you either. That's for Christ. God's given you children or grandchildren or a car or a meal today. That's not for you. That's for Christ. Every ounce of what we have in this world is for Jesus. And it angers the heart of God when we take the good things of God and pervert them for ourselves. Selfishness is not just a a byproduct mistake of our sinful hearts. It's a core issue of our sinful nature. It's not only the height of human corruption, it's something that incurs the anger of God to the point that Jesus does something that is no less than shocking. He drives them out, verse 45 He drives them out of the only place that they can meet with God the temple is not just the hub of activity for the Passover or for monetary gain. It's the hub of activity for your relationship with God and faith in God in this time. You wanted to honor God, you went to the temple and offered sacrifice. Maybe you could only do that one time a year, and that's why the Passover is so important You want to ask God for forgiveness? You go to the temple. You work through a priest. You offer a sacrifice. You want to have anything to do with God in your life during this time? You go to the temple. That is where God's presence is at. That is where God works. That's where God's commanded His people to meet with me at. That's why the temple was such a huge foundational, monumental place for Israel. And then here comes Jesus, and all of a sudden he's so angered by something, he drives people out of the only place they can have access with God at. What's going on here? What spurs such anger and indignation in the heart of Christ? It's dishonoring God's law, it's dishonoring God's house, it's dishonoring God's will and desire and intentions. All of that comes to this culmination point of saying, if you dishonor God enough, you will be removed from God. It's verse 42 already coming to fruition, isn't it? These things for peace with God are hidden from your eyes. You want to know how I know? Verse 45 I'll drive you out of the temple, and you will no longer have access. Is to drive them from God. Drive them from Himself. You don't want to honor Jesus. You don't want to recognize the Messiah. You don't want to honor God. Then get out. This is a far cry. From the loving Jesus that we so often portray. There's this stern reality church. Where God will not be mocked. And the things of God will not be mocked. And God will be honored. His holiness matters to him. His reverence matters to him. So Jesus weeps for their unwillingness to come to him. As Lord and Savior. But he's angry here for their perversion of the things of God. What was meant to be a house of prayer, a house of access to God Almighty, they made a den of robbers, a den of personal monetary gain. Oh, let us be warned not to do that ourselves. Finally, in verse 47 and 48, they devise evil plans. This is the third error or fault of Jerusalem. They devise evil plans. Again, if you reject Christ, then you will dishonor God, and that will lead to other ways of dishonoring God in your life, and ultimately you'll find yourself progressing to the point of devising evil, devising wickedness. Verse 47, the people have one of the greatest opportunities they can have in this moment. Jesus is teaching daily in the temple. It's this bookend picture of the life of Christ. In Luke's gospel alone, we find a young a pre-teenage Jesus, about the age of 12, he's in the temple, and what's he doing? He's answering questions about God, and people are amazed at his insight about God. Now, some 20 years later, here he is in the temple again, teaching with authority and clarity and insight. It's this bookend of the life of, of Jesus. We're coming to the end. And here he is teaching, and in verse 48, there are some people who are hanging on his every word. Praise God that even in chaos and hypocrisy and false religion, his grace will extend to some. But notice in verse 47, the chief priests, the scribes, the principal men, the influential leaders of the people, what are they doing? They're seeking to destroy him. The severity of their desire is seen in Luke's usage of the word destroy. And, and we have followed Jesus now through the Gospel of Luke. We've seen this progression with the religious leaders. Now, at first, they just really wanted Jesus to go away. Then they just wanted him to be quiet. Then they thought, well, perhaps if we arrest him, then we'll discredit him. It's progressed to this point that now, by the end of their li- his life, they're saying, let's destroy him. Let's get rid of this blasphemer. Again, a willful rejection of Jesus. And the only reason they don't attempt to do something, well, there's two. One is underlined in the Scripture and that's God's divine providence. But number two, verse 48, is because the people are listening to Him. And they're holding Him in high esteem. At least for the time being. How great it is that some will be saved even when most reject. Don't follow the sway of the crowd. Be the some who cling to Christ and hang on His every word, even if everybody around you rejects Him. These evil plans come out of the heart of these leaders because their eyes have been hidden from the things that make for peace with God. Jerusalem's fault at this point And Jesus' response to it is staggering. Here the Lord has come and he's entered this city for the sole purpose of dying on the cross and resurrecting to secure salvation for sinners. And what precedes all of that is this event where Christ weeps because they have not accepted him and is angered because they dishonor God. And they devise evil plans that will keep them from realizing what God is doing in Christ. The question we now come to at this passage. Is which of these faults are ours? What error do we find in our life that is here in Jerusalem? Is it possible That you sit here today having grieved and or angered the heart of Christ. And let me say, it is possible. Is it true? Is that true of you? A merciful, kind and gracious God obviously can be angered and his justice boil over have you neglected christ in your life to grieve his heart have you ignored him have you marched on and trudged through each and every day without giving a second thought to jesus have you willfully rejected him Have you failed to truly repent and trust in Him for salvation? Don't grieve the heart of Christ. He wants everyone to have peace with God. His death is proof. Have you angered the heart of Christ? Are you dishonoring the things of God for selfish pleasure or selfish gain or selfish advancement? Are you distorting and perverting the good gifts God has given to you in His mercy and His grace? Are you devising evil plans? Are you plotting out malicious actions? Are you spending your time in gossip and slander? Are you planning for the next moment when you can get alone and get away and indulge in whatever it is you indulge in? The good news is our Lord died to save people in such error. He died to save people who devise evil plans. He died to save people who dishonor God. He desired, died to, to save people who have not yet recognized Him as Lord and Savior, which means you can repent and be saved today. Whatever error you find in your life, whatever fault of Jerusalem is your fault, you can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. All of us are called after a passage like this to a place of genuine repentance, of real examination and honest confession to God. I read just this week, First John 1, 8, 9, If you confess your sins, He is faithful, both faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let today be a day of confession to Christ and repentance before Christ and faith in Jesus. And let the unbeliever come today and and find salvation in Jesus. And let the believer today renew their heart to Christ in repentance and faith and say, I'm all yours again. I'm all yours afresh, Lord Jesus. Help me not to devise wickedness. Help me not to dishonor God. Help me to see every gracious gift as a gracious gift that honors You. Help me to cling to You, Jesus, and every word that comes from Your mouth. Those are the right responses. The question is, will You make them? Will You make them? Our Lord, we are so thankful for heavy hard, weighty, warning passages like this because they serve the purpose of getting us back in line. And oh, we are sheep who are prone to get out of line. And you care enough about us to include these texts so that we might be warned and reminded and spurred back in the right direction. Oh God, I, I do not want you to weep for me. I do not want you to be angry because of me. Oh, and God, I have so many opportunities to give you anger and to cause you to weep. I have so much evil that's devised in my heart. I need you, Christ. We need you, Lord. Have mercy on us today. Help us to repent. Renew our faith. Renew our passion and our adoration. Give us salvation, Jesus. We need you to do these works because we can't do them on our own. The results are in your hands, Jesus. We submit ourselves humbly to you. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.